church. It's good to have you here. This is the second Sunday of Advent, and we get to look at the baptism of Jesus. And in order to do that, we've got to do some really heavy list, lifting from uh, the, the, the part of Isaiah that we read today. And so I would ask you to please bow your heads and pray with me. Lord God, we, we want to hear from you in this time. So would you uh, open our ears to hear. Use my words, speak through me, and, and uh, allow us to hear what you want us to hear this morning. And anything that's not of you, then don't even let me say it, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, today we're going to be doing a little bit of a Bible study. That's what we're doing, and um, uh, some people don't like it when the preacher does a Bible study, and I'm sorry if that's you. I already offered you an opportunity to go to kids' church, um, but that's what we're going to do. And so I, I ask you to stay with me. I think this is, this is really, to me, it's really an extraordinary uh, thing that we read today, and, and that's why I want to I look at it, because I want us to all uh, just kind of understand everything that is going on in this, in this moment. Last week, we saw that Mark opened his gospel by making an extraordinary claim about Jesus, about who Jesus is, into a world ruled by power and brutality, into a world where Christians had no power or standing at all. Mark says that the truly good news isn't about Caesar, it's about Jesus. In Rome at the time, I told you about that inscription that, that, was, that they found in, in Rome, in ancient Rome, that was made in honor of Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, and how it called Caesar a god, and that his birth was the birth of a savior, a savior for the whole world. And for the people of Rome, the birth of Caesar was the beginning of the good news of the god Augustus, savior of the world. That's what the inscription that they found in Rome said about Caesar Augustus, that's what it was. And so, and here's the staggering thing that we looked at last week. Into that world, Mark writes this gospel. And with his opening words, he announces that something momentous is happening. He begins with these words, the beginning of the gospel, which is the beginning of the good news, not of Augustus, but of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how Mark begins his gospel. And I mean, it's like, boom, from the very beginning. The gospel of Mark is about the clash of two kingdoms. On one side, you've got the kingdoms of this world. And on the other side, you've got the kingdom of God. And right from the beginning, Mark says that the true kingdom, the one with the real power, the one that can really bring peace and joy and hope to this world, is the kingdom that has Jesus on the throne, not Caesar. That's how Mark starts his gospel. It's a powerful statement of who Jesus is. You think that Caesar is in charge? You think Caesar is the one that you should honor and follow? Not so, Mark says. The real king and our real hope is Jesus. And then he quoted two prophets from the Hebrew people, Malachi and Isaiah. They were speaking of the time when God would come, the great and the terrible day of the Lord and in Malachi, God was coming in judgment because the people had robbed him. They had turned away from him. And God said that the priests were going to be refined. God was going to hold the priests accountable for the way that they had misled his people. But in Isaiah, God comes in comfort and mercy for those who trust in him. In Isaiah, God doesn't come to judge. He comes to save. So here's what Mark is saying. He's saying that somehow in the coming of Jesus, in the coming of God himself, that's what it is. The coming of Jesus is the coming of God himself. And for some, that coming will be a coming of judgment, like in Malachi. And for others, it will be one of mercy 
in grace and comfort like an Isaiah. Now listen to this from last week's gospel reading. This was Mark 1, verses 4 and 5. It says, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And this is an astonishing statement. Because, and here's why. Because baptism was something that was done to Gentiles. That's what, that's what baptism was. It was done to Gentiles who wanted to wash away their former life and become faithful followers of God and be incorporated into the Jewish people. Baptism was one, was one of the things that they had to do if they wanted to become Jewish, okay? And so for John to be proclaiming that the Jews needed to be baptized, it was like saying that these Jews needed to become Jewish again. For John to require Jews to be baptized, it was as if he was saying, you, are no, you all are no better than the Gentiles. In fact, you are Gentiles. And you, have become, and you have to become Jewish again in order for you to receive the Lord God when he comes. Their sins had to be washed away, and they had to become part of God's people again. And think about what a staggering pronouncement that would have been at that time. It was a huge indictment against the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees who were supposed to be leading God's people and keeping them ready for God's coming. Does that make sense? I mean, do you see how staggering it would be? This is something we do to Gentiles to make them ready. But now you're saying that we have to be washed just like the Gentiles so that we can become Jewish again? Anyway, it's a pretty staggering thing. That brings us to today's reading, the baptism of Jesus. But before I talk about that, I need, you to, I need to read you something from Isaiah, which to me helps us see what's happening in Jesus' baptism. Listen to this from the 63rd chapter of Isaiah. This is the cry of a people who have been in exile. This is the cry of a people who long to be rescued, who long to be restored. And I want, I want you to really listen to this. Listen to the urgency of this. Listen to the longing and the desolation in these words. I have to warn you, it's a, it's a little bit of a long passage, but just stay with me. This is, listen to the longing and the desolation. Where is he who brought the people of Israel up out of the sea with, his, with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from us. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people, held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence, to make your name known to your adversaries, and the nations might tremble at your presence. 
When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From old, no one has heard or perceived by ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him joyfully. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like, the, like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquity is like the wind. Take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the works of your hands. Be not so terribly angry, O oh Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, for we are all your people. Okay, that was a long reading. But there is such sadness in that reading. These are a people who have probably returned to Jerusalem from exile, where they spent 200 years in Babylon, but as many as 75% of the Jewish people had remained in exile. And it seemed that God's presence had not returned to his temple. So it's almost as if they are still in exile, even though some of them have returned to the promised land. And so in these verses, they remember how God saved them from Egypt. They remember how he divided the waters and led them through the desert. They remember how he sent his Holy Spirit among them to lead them. And just as an aside, did you know that this is the only place in the Old Testament where it, where, where it says that the Holy Spirit of God was with the people in those 40 years in the desert? It's the only place, only in this passage from Isaiah 63. But the people recognize that they have been unfaithful. They recognize that God has been just in his actions. And so all they can do is beg him to come back and save them, to rescue them and restore them. And then right there at the beginning of chapter 60, 64, that's what we read this morning. Uh, right there at the beginning of chapter 64, you have this cry from the people. Listen to this. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would crake at your presence, like when you came down and did awesome deeds that we did not expect. That's what they want from God. Tear open the heavens and come down and do awesome things in our midst again. And this is how Mark describes the baptism of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. This is in your reading. Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out in the wilderness. Right here, at the beginning of Mark, the heavens are torn open. And God has come down. And God and his Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus. And God the Father blesses Jesus as his beloved son. Now in the version that we read today, it just says that the heavens were opened. But in the NIV it says... He saw the heavens being torn open. And the ESV says the same thing. He saw the heavens being torn open. In other translations, he says, he saw the heavens being ripped apart. And another says, he saw the heavens being rent asunder. And that's what the Greek word actually means. It means to be torn open or ripped apart, ripped asunder. And that's what God's people in Isaiah were longing for God to do. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down and do awesome things. All the elements from Isaiah 63 and 64 are right here at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. 
The heavens are being torn open. God is descending. And throughout the rest of the gospel, God in Jesus is doing amazing things in their midst. Mark is saying that what the people were longing for in Isaiah 63 and 64 is being realized right here, right now in Jesus. It's all happening right here, right now in this one we call Christ. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. And you're not going to believe me about this. I can already tell you that you're not going to believe me, but I want you to believe me, okay? Because this is what it is. We misunderstand this today. We misunderstand this because we think of the dove as being a nice and soft, gentle thing. And we have these nice drawings of a dove, and we put them on our walls, and we hang them in the walls of our churches because that's what we, we think that it means, this really nice, picturesque dove. But did you know that in the ancient world, the flight of doves was seen as something very powerful? It really was because of the way their, their wings are flapping and the amount of wind that they move. There's an ancient document that describes the attack of an army like the flight of doves, which seems ridiculous to us because today doves are those that are for peace and would never fight a war. But back then, it, it, just seemed, it, was, it was seen as powerful. And in this instance, if you look at what the text says, if you look at what the text says, you see that it is the spirit that had descended on him like a dove that drives Jesus into the desert. So did a really nice little flappy dove drive Jesus into the desert? Just kind of get in his face and just kind of make him walk into the desert? No, the spirit drove him into the desert. He drives Jesus into the desert like a dove. Or like a dove, he drives him into the desert with power and authority and might. When the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, this is an image of great power. And the movement of a great amount of wind. God is ascending. And it is a powerful thing when he does. And in that moment, Jesus is anointed as the king of all kings. Listen. It says, and, the, and then the voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And this is actually a quote from Psalm 2. An enthronement psalm for King David. An enthronement psalm for the anointing of the king of God's people. Right here, God is enthroning Jesus as the true king of Israel. You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. He will be a true king, not like the kings of the nations, not like Caesar. Jesus will be a true king for the people of God, filled with the power of God to rule as the anointed one of God. Finally, in Jesus, the people are experiencing the return from exile that they have longed for. In Jesus, all the promises are being kept. The cry from Isaiah 64 that God would tear open the heavens and come down and do amazing things is being answered. And it's happening now. It's happening in Jesus. And Mark has just started to tell the story of this one. And as Mark says in the opening line of his gospel, this is just the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's who Jesus is, people. That's the one we celebrate each Sunday. That's the one we proclaim. Jesus, the king of all kings. Because more than all the power of this world, it's Jesus who can save. More than all the stuff that we might obtain, he's the answer to the longing in our hearts. And so, as I bring it back from Isaiah 60 and and way back there and bring it up to here, let me ask you this. What is your cry today? God's answer is Jesus, whatever that cry is. What do you long for in this life? God's answer is Jesus. What do you fear in this life? God's answer is Jesus.
So may we, in this season of Advent, the season of waiting and expectation and hope, may we long for God to come. May we all ready ourselves with expectation and hope for Jesus to come and do amazing things in our lives. And may we long for that day when he comes and he makes all things new. May we long for that day with all our hearts. In Jesus' name.